You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. Well, as the worship team goes to their seats, if you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Uh, by the way, we uh, didn't give instructions for this before uh, we sang, uh, but if you have your offering ready this morning, uh, we would encourage you to give in one of two ways, either A, through the uh, offering plate as you leave, or B, uh, through our online giving at give.southwidebaptist.com, give.southwidebaptist.com. So as we continue in our study of Acts, uh, we come to Acts chapter 17 this morning. And at the risk of being a broken record, we have been seeing essentially two things in this uh, book, in this really letter to Theophilus. Uh, we've been seeing two things. Number one, the great resistance to the gospel and to the church and its mission as a result. So, an incredible amount of resistance from beginning to end. Secondly, we've also been seeing right alongside it the great resilience of the gospel and the church and its mission. Ultimately, the gospel can never be stopped. The mission always goes on. It has for 2,000 years. And again, I want to keep encouraging you, don't quit. Especially now in our day, now is not the time to quit. The answer to our world is not November. The answer to our world is not a, uh, a, a cure to the coronavirus. The answer to our world is Jesus Christ. He is the only hope of all men. So now is not the time to quit. And praise God, our faith says to us and the promises of God that nothing will ever stop the gospel. The mission will continue. So here again in our passage, we see yet another example in Acts of the resistance to the gospel and yet the resilience of the gospel. So if you found your place, let me invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to go a little bit further than what your worship guide says. We're going to go through verse 15. So let's read together this morning. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, And not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob 
set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of his some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, They came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray this morning that you would again encourage us through your word and remind us of, yes, this resistance to the gospel that is not only here in the first century, but all around us every day. The world that we live in is not um, is not friendly to a gospel message. They are enemies of God. Uh, Lord, they they have rebelled against you. And so as we live in this world and proclaim this gospel, we will have persecution as well. And so I pray that you would encourage us today. Help us to be faithful to this gospel. And if there's someone here in this room or maybe even listening online who's never trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, God, we pray today would be the day of salvation. That by your spirit, you would draw them to yourself and that they would be saved. Because the gospel is the power of God and the salvation to all who believe. And so we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. On April the 18th, 1775, the story is told that John Adams and John Hancock were at the home of Reverend Jonas Clark. It's a story in our nation's history. And Jonas Clark was a Lexington pastor and militia leader. Now, there's some debate on how much of the details of this story are true, but the story goes that the same night that Paul Revere rode and arrived warning of the approaching redcoats, um, that they were gathered there together April the 18th, 1775. John Adams, John Hancock, Jonas Clark. The next morning, this British major uh, shouted to an assembly regiment of Minutemen, Disperse ye villains, lay down your arms in the name of George, the sovereign king of England. And the immediate response of Jonas Clark and his companions was, We recognize no sovereign God and no king but Jesus. Now it's said that this became the cry 
of the Revolutionary War in the name of religious freedom all across the colonies. In fact, Jonathan Trumbull, a crown-appointed governor of the colonies there, even wrote back a letter to England and it was read publicly. And it said, if you ask an American who is his master, he will tell you he has none nor any governor but Jesus Christ. Now again, there is some debate about how much of this story is true. Nonetheless, it is a great story, isn't it? It's the same kind of statement that we see coming from the early days of our nation's history. Tragically, it's no longer the anthem of our nation. No longer are we sing no, saying no king but Jesus. We're making anyone and everyone king on the throne. Everyone but Jesus. But it is a statement that we should hold to our hearts, hold near to our hearts. No king but Jesus. This is the anthem of the Christian life. And it is something that mirrors this very text that we read. Paul and Silas left Philippi. We were there last week having been beaten, arrested, and held captive there because only because they preached the gospel. And even though they were arrested and beaten, we know that the gospel still prevailed. As you read on in the story, Lydia and then the jailer there at the, the Philippian prison came to faith in Christ. And their entire household and others, the Bible tells us, as a result of their testimony. Paul and Silas left Philippi after all of this happened. They left Philippi and they, or rather, yeah, they left Philippi and they began to pass through Amphipolis and Apollonia. And they came to Thessalonica. So Thessalonica was about a hundred miles from Philippi. This was not a, a short journey. Would have been at least three days, maybe more. They would have probably made some stops along the way, but we don't have the details of that journey. Thessalonica was the largest city in Greece, estimated at about 200,000 people. There's a lot of people there who needed Jesus, and most of them lost, most of them without God. Today, Thessalonica remains one of the largest cities, if not the largest city in Greece at 1.1 million people. And so they arrive at Thessalonica. It seems Paul is beginning kind of a new pattern in his ministry. His goal is to set up shop and plant a church in, in the large major population centers so that from there the gospel would continue to go forth. And so consequently a church was established in Thessalonica. And it's the, the reason why two letters were written back to this church, namely First and Second Thessalonians. So, of course, Paul, when he gets to, the, gets to Thessalonica, he begins his ministry there in the synagogue. And the Bible tells us that on three Sabbath days, so three consecutive weeks, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And it says that he was explaining and proving Essentially, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was taking their Bible and showing them how Jesus was the fulfillment and his death and resurrection was the fulfillment of all that God had promised them in their scriptures. A small handful of Jews there in Thessalonica. The Bible says that a large number of them believed. Praise God. They believed and they joined Paul and Silas. And let me just pause and take a moment of privilege there for you to hear this. The assumption in the New Testament was not only that someone would make a profession of faith, 
that that profession of faith would be public and that it would be in relationship with a local body of believers. They joined them on their journey. And not only did these Jews believe, the Bible also says a great number of devout Greeks. Devout meaning probably religious, but now having come to realize that the one true God is the God Jehovah and His Son, Jesus Christ, triune, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, rejected all of their cultural gods, Greek gods, to follow Jesus. And not only them, but a few, not a few, he says, so many of the leading women. So despite the resistance that was coming to the gospel in the church, they were ministering the gospel and still proving to be as resilient as ever. The gospel message was still true and still effective. And if you look at it in the larger context, I mean, put this in the larger context. Think about all that Paul had gone through at this point. Beaten, imprisoned, left for dead, beaten here again, put into prison. Ultimately, he continued, continued to serve the Lord and the gospel continued to prove to be true. And this was not merely inconvenience. It was immense suffering, suffering that if anything could stop the spread of the gospel and yet it failed. Even after the conflict at Thessalonica, Paul goes off to Berea and despite the angry mob that was gathered, he, he continued to preach the gospel and the Bible says that in Berea they were more noble, the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica and they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And verse 12 says, many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. The gospel can't be stopped, cannot be stopped. And we must continue to preach the gospel today over and over and over again without being silenced. What was it that had these Jews so stirred up here at Thessalonica? What was the major conflict? Well, verse five says the Jews were jealous. That's interesting. It's not a righteous kind of action or attitude. The Jews were jealous. We'll come back to that in a moment. And it says, taking some wicked men of the rabble. The world is a rabble. It's the equivalent of a local gang. It was all the ruffians, if you will, of the marketplace. Those who stole and those who used violence to get their way. These were rough guys. It's almost like going down to the county jail and pulling out all the roughest guys you you can. And the Jews say, we're going to use these guys to our advantage. It says they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacked the house of Jason. We don't know a lot about Jason. We know that he was a believer. And he was faithful enough to to take in these believers, these apostles, as they were doing the work of the ministry into his own home. And so it says in verse 6, when they could not find them, they go to Jason's house looking for them. When they could not find them, they drag Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. And listen to what their objection is. Here's where we get to the heart of the objection. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And listen to what they say. And Jason has received them and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying 
that there is another king, Jesus. That's their concern. They're jealous. And these men are declaring another king besides Caesar. The concern was not religious at all. The concern was, in fact, personal because they were jealous. And the concern was political because they were declaring Jesus to be a king greater than Caesar. And so much greater that they are to obey God rather than man. They were jealous of the men's influence. They were stirring up the whole city, turning the world upside down. And they were threatened by the claim that there was some other king that they should follow. Three charges specifically leveled against these Christians. The first one was against Paul and Silas. It says that they caused trouble all over the world. They were troublemakers. It's kind of a nebulous claim to claim that these guys were just stirring up trouble. It sounds a lot like some of the claims that are going against the church today in terms of coronavirus and all these other things. They're just troublemakers. The second thing was against Jason. He was harboring troublemakers. Nothing against the law yet. And that the third claim was against Paul, Silas, and then presumably Jason and those of his household. Because they were defying Caesar's decrees, claiming that there was another king. Then once Paul got to Berea, the Bible tells us that the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was spreading there and it wasn't enough. For them to just stop it at Thessalonica, they had to go to Berea also. And they stirred up another crowd and agitated, stirred them up so they would come against against Paul. In essence, in essence, Paul is saying we recognize no sovereign but God and no king but Jesus. Now, it's different than those of the Revolutionary War. The apostles were not denying the authority of Caesar. Caesar certainly did have authority in his area of reign as God had given to him and appointed that he should lead. But he did not have authority where God had not given him authority. And this is where the church was making a stand. They were declaring the authority, in other words, of Jesus over and above Caesar. In fact, over and above all other authority. And this was the threat to these Jews. And this will be the threat to all of those who stand in rebellion against a holy God. Both personally and politically. Anyone who stands in rebellion against God to say that Jesus is king is to declare war. And the problem was not that Jesus was another king. The problem was that Jesus was the only king. You see, the gospel presents us with an ultimatum, doesn't it? In our lives, personally, politically and otherwise, the question is, will we submit to the absolute authority of Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords? Will we or will we rise up against him and personally reject his authority in and over our life? That's the question of the gospel. The question of the gospel is not do I just simply do I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me and rose again? The question of the gospel is, will I submit to Jesus as Lord of my life? It's the question, because if Jesus is savior, he's also Lord. And that means that he he I owe him everything. My life is down before him. I cannot just receive Jesus as savior. I must submit to Jesus as Lord. 
And here's what we learn from this passage. The gospel proclaims the absolute authority of Jesus as the king who reigns over all. The gospel proclaims the absolute authority of Jesus as the king who reigns over all. And the authority of Jesus, which man cannot ultimately resist, by the way, will always threaten those who are in rebellion against God. Three ways in the passage that we see the authority of Jesus very clearly, not only in this statement of objection that we see here uh, from these Jews, but we see it uh, we see it identified in, in three ways in the sermon and in the activity of Paul and these other brothers and sisters. Number one, we see the authority of Jesus as the Christ. The authority of Jesus as the Christ. Notice with me that in verses 2 and following, it says that Paul went in. Where did he go? He went into the synagogue specifically, as was his custom. This is the way Paul normally began in any city he went into. He had a heart for the Jews. There's a there's a story in that. We'll come back to that in the days ahead. But he comes to the Jewish synagogue and on three Sabbath days. So for three weeks, maybe put in terms we understand as the church, three Sundays, Saturdays, but three Sundays, Paul gathers there with the people, the Jews there at the synagogue, and he reasons with them. This is seemingly not a sermon where he's standing up like this and giving a message, but rather where he's having conversations with individuals and groups of these Jews and reasoning with them from their Bibles. So, uh, hey, David, let me have a conversation with you. You know, this scripture we've been reading today in synagogue, let me let me just point you to it. Isn't it possible, David, that this could be the Messiah? Isn't it possible, David, that that this Jesus who was crucified, isn't this the fulfillment of what the scriptures are that you've been reading? This is the kind of conversation that David or rather that Paul seems to be having with people. David just being some fictitious Jew. And so he reasons with them from the scriptures and he says he's doing two things, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, here's his main argument. Luke doesn't give us all of the details of what he's saying. But what he's after is this. This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Now, for some of our children, the question has been asked often, what is Jesus' last name? And some children would say, Jesus Christ. It's his last name. But the word Christ is the Greek representation of the word Messiah. It's just simply to be the chosen of God, the promised one. Jesus is the one whom the Old Testament said was coming. This is what he's saying. I want to tell you, Jews, that the one you've been studying about for millenniums is now here. Jesus has come and Jesus is the one who saves. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised of God. Well, this is the pattern of Paul's ministry every time he went to the synagogue. If you turn back, let's go back just for a second to John, I mean, to uh, Acts chapter 13. You'll see it. 
maybe unpacked. And so this isn't what Paul said, but it's similar to what he might have said when he when it says that he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Look with me at verse 16 there. It says that Paul stood up and motioned with his hand and he said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. So he's going back to their history. He's saying, remember the time that you were in Egypt? God delivered you. With uplifted arm, he led them out. Verse 18. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. I love that. That's me. God puts up with me in my wilderness. Verse 19. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. This is all God's doing in their life. Verse 20, all this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. Then they asked for a king (laughs) and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of course, this man's offspring, God brought of this man's offspring. God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised In other words, Paul is saying all of these things in your history were only to lead you to a better redeemer, a better leader than Moses, a better king than David, a better prophet than Samuel. Jesus is the one who has come to be the fulfillment of all that you've ever hoped for and all that God has ever promised. And he goes on and he begins to reason with them from the Old Testament. He quotes from the second Psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Quoting verse after verse, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. You will not let your holy ones see corruption over and over again, quoting to them their verses from the Old Testament. This is what we see Paul doing at Thessalonica. He's reasoning with them from the scriptures. He's preaching in the synagogue, constantly pointing to Jesus as the primary promise of the Old Testament, the fulfillment of all that God said would be. All of these pointers. Luke described this as reasoning with them. It's further elaborated by those two words, explaining and proving to explain the necessity of the gospel, why Jesus must die on the cross and be raised again, not only explaining what happened, but proving the necessity of it. All of that in order that he might say, Jesus is the one that God has promised all this time. He's the Messiah, the chosen of God, sent from God. This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He was God in human flesh. And by nature of his identity as the Messiah, Jesus has all and absolute authority, both in heaven and on earth, to do whatever he pleases. Anyone who denies the divinity of Jesus has not read their Bible. It's amazing how many people that you would talk to that that 
miss all of the Old Testament and all of its promising of Jesus to come. Even those who don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior have said that it's a statistical improbability or even impossibility that Jesus could have ever fulfilled all of the things that he fulfilled from the Old Testament. And yet he did. Which means he can only be God. And he's supreme and in authority over all things. And so we see his authority as the Christ. He's just simply in authority because of who he is. But secondly, we see that he's in authority because of what he's done. The authority of Jesus as the Savior. As the Savior. So look at that verse 3 with me again. He says in verse 3 that he was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. He has reasoned with them about the gospel. There is a built in defense to defending Jesus as the Christ. He's also defending the reality of the gospel and the call to these Jews to believe the gospel. You can't look and see who Jesus is without submitting to the need to have Jesus as Savior of our lives. He's explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. I don't know if these Thessalonians had ever heard the gospel before. I don't know if they had heard about Jesus. News probably had spread, but I'm sure they were a little cloudy on some of the details. And so he's explaining to them what happened, what actually happened. Can I tell you what Jesus has done for you? And we need to constantly explain the gospel, don't we? You you might think we live in a country where everyone in America has heard the gospel. False, not true. I had a conversation a few weeks ago on our front porch with someone who had never heard. I explained the gospel to them. I asked them if they knew who Jesus was. They said yes. I then explained the gospel and they said, I've never heard that before. You see, I think we're guilty as Christians about declaring the name of Jesus without declaring the gospel of Jesus. And if we just tell the story, someone might trust in Jesus because God might in fact be doing a work by His Spirit in someone's heart and someone's life. And so Paul wants to just simply explain it, but then also to prove it. And to prove what? Why it was necessary for Jesus to die on the cross and rise again. And I think that's so critical that we see that in this text. It was necessary. It wasn't something that was optional. You realize that, don't you? This was something that God not only set into motion from the beginning of time, but because of the nature of man... It's necessary not only because Jesus set out to be Savior, it's necessary for Jesus to go to the cross and to be raised again to life because we are sinners. We need a Savior. So yes, it was absolutely necessary and it was necessary according to the Scriptures. Romans 3, we quote this often, but this is the quote, a quote directly from the Old Testament, from multiple passages. Romans 3 says... As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. This is who we are by nature. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. 
Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Inasmuch as that was written in the Old Testament in Psalm 14 and 53 and 5 and 140 and 36 and 59 and Isaiah 59 and Proverbs 1. Inasmuch as that was true of the Old Testament and it was true in the first century Rome where Paul was as he's writing these words to the Romans. It could easily just as easily have been written about us. Fact is that there is none who seeks after God by nature. And so it was necessary for Jesus to suffer because we're sinners. Our sins demonstrate that we need Christ. But the reality that Jesus went to suffer for our sins demonstrates that He has authority over our sin and our death. Amen? Jesus has absolute authority over those things. It was necessary for Jesus to rise again to demonstrate that death could not hold Him. He was raised to life so that He now lives and He will never die again. Jesus died once and for all for sinners. And His being alive today says that He is an authority over all things. As if He needed any more proof, but He did. He demonstrated it in rising from the dead. And so the result here, Thessalonica, it says some were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of devout Greeks. Lots of people were saved. Berea, same story. The same story. Jesus has all authority as Savior. I wonder if you find yourself in the position today that you're lost in sin and in need of Christ. Today, Jesus has all authority over your sin, your death, your penalty, and Jesus will take all of your sin. He will forgive your sin. And it is possible because of the blood of His cross. And when Jesus declares not guilty, it means not guilty. Because there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen? And so He is in all authority as Savior. Number three. We see Jesus' authority as Savior. His authority as the Christ. And we see Jesus' authority as the Word. Jesus' authority as the Word. So the brothers immediately send Paul and Silas away to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue, just as they did in Thessalonica. And it says that these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Meaning they're not going to stir up all the trouble that the ones in Thessalonica did. And so it says about them that they received the word with all eagerness. Examining the Scriptures daily. Super important phrase here. Examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now there's an interesting parallel here between Thessalonica and Berea. Paul was proving from the, from the, the Scriptures the Gospel. Now here at Berea, the Jews were actually proving Paul by the Scriptures. On the one hand, Paul is saying, don't believe this gospel I'm preaching unless you see it in the word. On the other hand, the, the people at Berea, the Jews at Berea were saying, we're not going to believe this gospel you're preaching, Paul, unless we see it in the word. In both instances, the authority of the message was established based, based on its proximity to the word, not to who was preaching it. 
Not to the number of words that were said, the sense that the message made, none of those things. They measured the authority of the message based on its proximity to the word. And in John 1, we find that Jesus is the word. It is through Paul that Jesus is, in fact, speaking. Hebrews 1 says that long ago, at many times, in many days, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets says in verse 2, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. Jesus is the one speaking today, even in the preaching of the Gospel, in the reading of His Word. Jesus is the one who is providing the message. And unless the message comes from the absolute authoritative Word of the living Christ, it bears no authority on our lives. Amen? We measure every message we hear based upon whether it is so from the Scriptures. And if it's not so from the Scriptures, it holds no authority. On the other hand, if the message comes from God's Word, it is more than an inspirational speech. It is the very voice of the living God to His people which He intends for us to obey. That goes, listen, for the messenger and for the ones who hear. We must obey His Word. The Word has absolute authority over us. And not just us. Let's keep reading one more verse in Romans 3. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, So that, listen to this, every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. If everyone's a sinner and everyone's under the word, that means every one of us are under the authority of Almighty God. And everyone will ultimately bow the knee to Christ. He has absolute authority. So... He is King who reigns over all. In the words, potentially, of our forefathers here in our country, there is no King but Jesus. That means at least two things very quickly for us as the church. It means, number one, that the Gospel will not fail. If Jesus has all authority, right? It means the Gospel can't fail. Not only that it hasn't failed, it will never fail. Because Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He's Savior as the Christ and the Savior of the world and the Word of the living God. He he bears all authority. He can't be stopped. Praise God. The Gospel will never fail. And it also means, secondly, that the church must not quit. The church must not quit. You see, the kingdoms of this world in some way are always going to, in various degrees, at various intensities, various violence levels, in some way they're always going to, by nature, resist the kingship of Jesus. Because all of creation, all men have rebelled against a holy God. All women, all children. And we stand condemned before a holy God. It's both political and it is personal. It is both corporate and individual. We stand guilty before a holy God. 
And the kingship of Jesus produces two types of reaction. Either this morning you're a Christian and you're hearing about the kingship of Jesus and there is this joyful submission in your heart. That's what's in my heart this morning. This joyful submission because I know I don't have control over anything. If it was up to me, the world would just go spiraling out of control. But the Savior I serve has control over all things. And there's some things God wants me to do and God does sometimes that maybe I would do a different way. But I'm not king. And if I did those things, it would mess everything up. Praise God, even when it is difficult, I submit my life to the kingship of Jesus Christ because what He does is good and wise and perfect and He's sovereign over all things. And so it is joyful submission in the heart of the Christian. The second reaction and the only other reaction, though it takes various forms, that we could have when it comes to the kingship of Jesus is rebellious rejection. No, we cannot ultimately resist His rule. He is sovereign. And yet, we can reject it. The Bible teaches that all of those who have rejected Christ are condemned already because they did not receive Jesus as the one and only Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the Savior of the world. You see, the Gospel proclaims that Jesus has absolute authority as King over all things. And so the ultimatum it's before us, that's before you today, is will you submit to the absolute authority of Jesus Christ? Or will you rise up against Him and personally reject His authority in your life? With every head bowed and every eye closed this morning, it's the decision that's before us. You know, even as believers, sometimes it's hard. Whenever things don't go the way that we expected them to go or the way that we would have planned it in our lives, it's hard to continue to trust in Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. And yet, even through all of those things, the Spirit of God is good and faithful to lead us to conviction and to to repentance and to lead us back to the straight and narrow path of following Christ, even when it's tough. And so you may be a Christian in here and you're wondering why would God lead you to what you're facing in your life? And I I don't have the answer to that. But I do know that the Bible would call you to trust. Trust in His authority. Trust in His sovereignty today. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Maybe today you are in rebellion against God. And today you need to be saved. In just a few moments, we're going to stand together. Our worship team is going to lead us in a song. The altars will be open. I'll be here. But if that's you this morning, you've never trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, you need to step out of where you'll be standing and come down this aisle and say to me, Pastor, today I need to trust Christ. Today I want to be saved. Will you help me? The Bible teaches that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so I'll lead you to follow Jesus who gave His life for you. The one who is raised to life. The one who can forgive you of all of your sins if you would simply trust Him today by faith. And so would you stand with me all across this room? I'm going to pray and in just a few moments when I finish praying, the altar will be open. This aisle will be open. You come this morning and trust in, in Christ. Lord, we pray this morning that You would have Your way in our hearts. That You would help us to surrender at the very foot of the cross. Because You are King. The one who died on the cross and the one who reigns on the throne today, right now, over our lives.
And you want to sit on the throne of our hearts. So I pray that you would give freedom from sin, that you would cause people to be born again even now as they follow you with their life. In Jesus' name, amen. You come this morning as they begin to sing. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ. Thank you.